Hey guys, it me, and I'm back with another mini-sode of my best vintage life. If you saw my recent Instagram post, you would have seen that I decided to change the name of my alphabet feature from a fashion designer feature to a fashion figure feature, only because I think that while there are so many great designers out there, there are a lot of really cool people who have left their impact on the fashion industry that weren't designers, and I want to be fair to everyone and be more inclusive. So this week, I am covering a fashion figure um, who was a tailor and then became famous. Well, let me tell you all about him. (laughs) Um, I'm covering Ebenezer, which I love that name, by the way, if you've ever seen Scrooge. Scrooge was like a super classic movie in my family growing up. We used to watch like a really, really old version of it. Um, I can't remember the British actor's name, but it was super old and in black and white. And then I think there was like a George C. George C. Scott version. And there's been a bunch of different versions, but every time I hear Ebenezer, it makes me think of Scrooge. Anyway, um, I'm covering Ebenezer Butterick. So for some people, Butterick might set off like a flag in your head like, oh, I've heard that name before. So I'm going to tell you why. Ebenezer Butterick was born in 1826 in Sterling, Massachusetts. So he was born in New England and he was a tailor. So what he is most famous for doing is creating a company that made graded clothing patterns. And I'll explain more about that. So there was one night when his wife was making a dress for their son and I'm sure it wasn't like a like a dress dress. I think it was maybe more like a nightgown type, you know, for like a baby, baby dress. And it was like blue and white gingham. And she drew out her design and, you know, started cutting. But she had remarked to him that it would be so cool to have a pattern that was sized for their son instead of having to buy either make her own pattern or buy a pattern and then grade it on her own so grading is literally just changing the the specs of the garment for different size people different size children whatever so basically any of the patterns that were being sold at that time were like not graded out it was just for one size and you had to do all of that on your own and him being a tailor he obviously had some idea as to what she was talking about so he listened and kind of did some prototypes. I think he first used cardboard, which obviously shipping out like in the mail for a mail order um, type business would be hard because it would get bent and it wouldn't ship well. So he ultimately decided on tissue paper to craft the patterns that they were interested in making. And they did this within their home with their uh, family and friends for like a year. Um, I think they had to expand into the house next to them. And then they ultimately moved into a building in New York City, which for that time period was probably so exciting um, to have such, you know, an amazing idea and for it to expand so quickly. Um, And for the first three years, they did men's and boys clothing only, and then they expanded into women's. And within the women's category, they did jackets, dresses, and capes, and they did that in 13 sizes, which in my opinion is a lot. And then they did skirts in five sizes. So gave women options of things that they could buy and sew and make on their own with fabric that they choose. And the thing that I really like about the Butterick Company is that, you know, at that point in time, fashion was something that was accessible for the wealthy only. But once they made these patterns, it really gave people the option to make their own clothes, to make their own style, to wear what people were wearing in Europe or in in New York City, the wealthier people. So I really like that 
no matter who you were, if you had like a minimum amount of money, you could go buy these paper patterns, pick a fabric you like, and make your own look. I think that's really cool and probably made a lot of people feel a lot more special and confident about what they were wearing because at the time, a lot of people were taking hand-me-downs or clothing that they already owned and kind of tweaking it to be new things, but the Butterick company and their patterns kind of gave them the option to make something new, something fresh, and I, I think that's really great. So this is one of the main reasons why I chose him to cover this week. Um, really, to market their their business, they use print media to sell the patterns so people would get um, like magazines and catalogs and they could order patterns, um, you know, like back when catalogs were a thing, like Delia's and Alloy for people of my generation, you know, you would place your order through the mail and then eventually internet orders caught on. But back then that was really the only option you had was to mail in your order. So um, using the print media really helped drive their sales and ultimately grow the business. And by 1876, they had 100 branch offices and 1,000 agencies in the United States and Canada. So that's pretty impressive growth considering he was born in 1826. So, you know, in 50 50 years of his life, I'm sure he didn't expect all of this to happen. So um, eventually that year, they also expanded into Paris, London, uh, Vienna, and Berlin. And Paris was like their best-selling store because granted, there were wealthy people wearing the high fashions in, in France and in Paris, but there were probably definitely a lot of people that were lower and middle class that couldn't afford it. But the patterns made the styles and the silhouettes more accessible for them. So I totally get why Paris was so high grossing for them was mostly because there's so many fashionable people there and people that really care about fashion. So that leads up to 1903. They actually built a building on uh, the intersection of Spring and McDougal Street in New York City. And um, during like that time, it was the largest manufacturing firm in the world. One of the one of the largest, not the largest. And next to like the U.S. government printing agency, it was the largest publishing plant in the United States. I want to say it was like 16 stories tall, the building. Um, so that's just so crazy to me how they grew so fast and were able to expand that much and to construct a building that large and employ all those people. Uh, that must have been a crazy feeling for him and for his wife. Um, but sadly, the same year that the building was constructed, he passed away. Now, I will say this much. I don't have as much information about him as I do the company, unfortunately. Uh, but I do know he died in 1903 at age 76. Now, I'll say this much. For somebody born in the early 1800s, I feel like that's a really long life. And, um, you know, I mean, some people aren't lucky enough to live that long today. I think that was probably above average lifespan at the time. So I'm sure he was very, you know, I hope he was happy when he died of everything that he achieved. And I don't have any information on when his wife passed away or who took over, if his, like, family kept it up or if, like, other people ran the business. I'm not sure. Um, but I do have plenty of more good news about the business itself. Um, there's this really cool fact that I have here. Uh, in 1904, they were getting, so the year after he died, they were getting 29,000 letters a week from customers and these letters included questions suggestions and ideas um, from people and 
I what I really liked about them is instead of like having a big ego and being like, oh, we're not going to listen to them, they actually opened up a special correspondence department within the company. And apparently they still have um, a department similar to that today where, you know, people answered those letters and thanked the people for their suggestions and their for ideas. And I'm sure at the end of the day, they got a lot of really great suggestions out of it. And sometimes, you know, I'm sure they were like cranking out so many patterns and reinventing the wheel so many times. That was probably nice to get some fresh fresh ideas from um, outside sources. And um, the one thing that I really thought was interesting about this business is, you know, in 1929, they, they felt like the crash of the Great Depression, but people were turning to patterns for their fashion. So they were using fabric that they had or clothes that they had and trying to turn them into new things because nobody had the money to there was no like buying power anymore for people to buy new stuff so buying a pattern was a lot cheaper than buying new clothes so it really gave them an option despite everything that was going on and the the hard economic times during that era they were able to have something fresh and something new thanks to the butterick patterns and also another kind of hard time for the well, not, I want to say that the Depression was super hard for the company, but it uh, wasn't easy. And another hard time they faced was World War II. Uh, there was a war production board in, in Washington, D.C. that basically planned for a limited yardage in, in, clo- like in fabric for clothing. So um, the president of Butterick at the time was on a committee with other people who were a part of like the sewing pattern community. And basically they kind of worked with the um, the government to – you know, not be super, super strict. So companies like Butterick, the way they responded was they made patterns, but the patterns had fewer pieces involved or less trim. That way the garments were more basic and could be worn for a few years or a few seasons without um, so much of a trend feel, but more of like a tried and true piece that'll stay in your wardrobe longer. And then in 1945, um, they wanted to expand, so they built a new plant in Altoona, Pennsylvania. So um, most of you know I am from Pennsylvania. Altoona is kind of like the direct center of Pennsylvania. I always say I'm from central, the central part of the state, but I'm actually, if you drew like, if you drew a line through Altoona and then went to the eastern border, I'm kind of like, I grew up in between those two places. So I always say kind of like east central, but um Altoona, PA, it's a pretty built-up area now, mostly because Penn State University is very close by, Um, but I'm sure at the time it was probably had much more of like a a rural, um, wide-open vibe, which was probably pretty ideal for building a large facility. And, you know, once they had that new um, plant, they were able to bring in new machinery, and I from what I read, one of the most exciting things was they were bringing in machines that could print on the patterns. So, you know, the people when they were using them had like something more bold and obvious. So they knew what they were doing, where they were cutting and folding, etc. And then in the 50s, um, the one pattern that stuck out to me was called 6015. And it was called their walkaway dress. Um I guess it was so popular that they actually had to cease production on other styles so that they could fill all the back orders for this style. And I think the um, 
the slogan for their dress was like walk from breakfast into luncheon. So kind of like a transitional day dress vibe. I haven't looked up a picture of it yet, but I'll see if I can find one. But from what I understand, that was like one of their most popular patterns of, of all time. So I definitely, if I find it, I'll, I'll post that on um, Instagram. And then um, in 1961, they uh, licensed the name and trademark of Vogue Patterns from Condé Nast. So Vogue Patterns, um, I'm sure you're also familiar with them as well. I'm not going to give you the history of them. You can find that online. But they basically became, you know, like a condensed um, company. So you have two, two different types of patterns. The Vogue Patterns were you know, developed, I think, with a much more fashion-forward customer in mind, um, I believe mostly female, and kind of echoing the ideas of what was seen on the runways at the time, where I think Butterick's patterns, they were fashionable, but I think a little bit more, um, like, I don't want to say realistic, but feasible for, like, the everyday woman versus, like, somebody who's looking to be super trendy, um, so skipping ahead to 2001, uh, McCall, who also makes patterns, acquired both Vogue Patterns and Butterick. So they are like a conglomerate now. And um, you can still buy these patterns today. So um, that's really what I have on Ebenezer Butterick. And like I said, it was more about the company than it was about him. Um, but it sounds to me like he was a really talented, hardworking man. And I like that he respected and appreciated the idea of his wife because ultimately that that changed their lives i mean i'm sure they probably weren't like super wealthy people or anything like that and they went from being not nothing crazy to being you know probably pretty crazy successful so i'm sure that was a wild ride for him and um i think like i said i like how accessible it made fashion and style and trend for a lot of people out there who couldn't necessarily afford it. So one of the exciting things about Butterick is, is that my old coworker from Urban Outfitters, Susan, um, when she uh, left her job to move back to her native Georgia, she uh, gave me all of her um, pattern books that she had. And I do have a Butterick home catalog from 1970, summer 1970, as you can imagine. It's pretty incredible so I'm going to I might do like either like a video or maybe post some pictures of it but it's just it's so awesome it has such a cool vibe and it's all like in color and everything there's editorial images and then after the um, editorial images there's the patterns that you can order and it's really cool because like when you open the um, cover it says there's a little slip and it says to order patterns call or visit your nearest Butterick dealer or use the convenient order envelope in the back of this book if you cannot purchase Butterick patterns in your area. So once again, making things accessible and there might be somebody living in like a more remote, desolate area of the country and they might not have access to a store that carried the patterns. So they were able to, um, you know, order them through mail. So I think that's really nice. But yeah, so that's all I have on Ebenezer Butterick. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Once again, follow along at my Best Vintage Life podcast on Instagram. Check out the merch website, mybestvintagelifepodcast.com. I refreshed it. It has a new look. It looks cute. Love it. Um, Follow along on Facebook. And don't forget to rate and review if you haven't. I really appreciate you taking the time to do so. 
So until next time, my friends, stay safe and don't be basic. Bye.